Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Bring, bring it fast. Welcome back to the EPL Roundtable. I'm your host, Kevin DeVries, and as always, if you'd like to reach us at the podcast, you can do so by either tweeting us at EPL Roundtable or emailing us at EPLRoundtable at gmail.com. Alright, tonight's show is going to be a little bit different because we're going to be recording segments with different guests uh, speaking about what's been happening at their club. Up first, we have Jake Jackman talking all things Newcastle. How are you doing, Jake? No, I'm good. Yourself? Yeah, not too bad. Glad to hear that you're doing well. Uh, obviously, we were talking about the Newcastle uh, defeat on Twitter a little bit ago. You're talking about how downtrodden you felt. Is that still the pervading feeling throughout the club? Yeah, I'd, I'd say it is. Um, I think my over uh, my overriding sort of um, emotions toward Newcastle at the moment are sort of just uh, one of apathy and sort of just wanting the season to end and sort of I'd say I'm apprehensive about the future, but it's, uh, I, I think it it should become a lot more fun to support the club next season, regardless of what division we're in. Purely because I think at the moment we've just got a squad of players that just don't really care and have already uh, got their um, sides set on a move away, and they they they're all sort of like expecting that, and you can sort of see in the performances they don't really care and that. And that has reflected in our position in the table, sadly. But it's, yeah, it's, there's, there's just at the moment, there's just a lot of bad, so just a lot of uh, players there that don't want to be there. And I think I'm excited for them to move on. I'm hoping we can somehow stay in the division, but I think that's, I think that's looking more and more unlikely with every passing game. So I don't. But yeah, it's 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 just sort of a just not a great time to be a Newcastle fan at the moment. Yeah, it does seem as though the Premier League chance has kind of drifted away, specifically with that Norwich match, which was absolutely gut-wrenching. Uh, I guess one of the big questions is, where do you go from here? Uh, a lot of the players are still on big contracts. Will you largely sell a lot? Do you think you'll keep some of their players? And how do you think you'll fare next season? Yeah, it's difficult to sort of see what, what's going to happen to a lot of them. I can, I can see the likes of uh, Yamat, Sissoko, Wijnaldum all getting moves away. Um possibly Townsend as well because it looks like he's got some sort of uh, fee written into his contract that he can go for if we do go down so I'd expect him to leave because he's been quite good since joining but yeah apart from that I'm not I think we're going to be stuck with a lot of these players I think I think um, this week there was a lot of news articles coming out about Shelby and how he's on 80,000 a week and how he was going to stay even if we go down which I mean, I don't know whether he's staying because he wants to stay or if he's purely staying because he won't get that money elsewhere. I fear it's a latter, but uh, I think I think we'll put together a decent enough squad, one that should be able to come back up at the first time of asking. Um, so we've got players like Adam Armstrong and Rolando Ahrens who haven't really played a lot in the Premier League and have both looked good you know, when they've been given chances. So it'd be a chance for them to sort of to come through and bring in a few players that you know will care more about the care more about the club and put in sort of better performances like we had last time we went down hopefully that will happen and I'm hoping that Benitez will stay because I think he's the type he's the manager that could sort of get us back to where we belong in the long term and there's some positive noises about that coming out um, coming out of the club this week but yeah that's all up in the air and I I wouldn't be surprised if he left but I'm hoping that he does stay because I think with him we'd put together a decent enough score he would get the players to sort of put in 100% every week and that's what we need to get back up. I think I, I think it'll, it'll be tough if we if we do go down as it looks likely to get, come back up at the first attempt, but I'd, I'd expect us to put together a squad capable of doing it. It's whether they do or not is, is, is a completely different question. But I'd, yeah, I'd, I think we'd have a, a decent enough squad to sort of challenge in the top six of the championship if, if we do go down. Yeah, obviously losing a club like Newcastle is a blow to the Premier League, although some fans have some weird vendetta against you. Um, 
another club that's been flirting for a very long time with the drop zone has been Sunderland, um, <laughs> prompting Are You Wigan in the Skies chance from many a fan. Is there any consolation in the fact that after their most recent result that they're probably also joining you down in the championship? Um, I'm not really... I wouldn't, it, Sunderland didn't really bother me that much, but yeah, I, I think it, it's really bad for North East football in general that they're both going to be relegated. And Although it looks like Middlesbrough are coming up, I, I think it is really bad that both clubs will be playing in the second tier next season, as it looks likely, unless uh, Sunderland get a good result this weekend against Norwich, which they desperately need. But, I mean... It doesn't bother me that much, but I mean, it's quite, it's, it's, I guess it's a slight sort of high uh, to the season to see some of them finally go down, but yeah, it's, they, they will just beat us next year in the championship. It's just another, another two games we don't really want to play next year, but it's, it's, it's what's happened. And I think, I think the three clubs that look like they are going down probably have all been poorly managed to the extent that they all deserve to probably go down and they've all been sort of a scourge to the Premier League in the last few seasons so I think it's a I, I think it's a good thing for the league that the three clubs that are looking like they're going down are going down despite the fact that I support one of those clubs yeah uh, an interesting thing from an external perspective is that, that in years past the Mike Ashley out train has been, has had a lot more passengers on it than it has right now when it seems you're about to hit the drop is that surprising to you, and is that reflected in the community, or are people still just as furious with Ashley, and we're just not hearing about it as much? Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd say the the sort of hate for Ashley has remained. I think I think the majority of sort of recent supporters will will put the blame at his door because you can't. I don't think it's fair to put the blame on anybody else. He's he's making all the decisions. He's he's in charge of uh, he's in charge of the footballing side. He's you know he's. He's he's employing the likes of Lee Charnley and um, Steve McLaren into these jobs, and they're just not not capable of doing them. So I I think it's been slightly shadowed a bit where he spent a bit of money, and that's given him a bit of sort of leeway with the fans. But I think on the whole, there's still a, quite a big Ashley out sort of contingent, and I think that's only going to grow if we go down. Although it looks like we're stuck with him, whatever happens. So it's. I mean, you there's only so much you can do to to campaign against an owner. You sort of just have to accept it. At the end of the day, we've got him; he's got us. We can't we can't do anything about that. So we just sort of just have to accept it. He's making. I'd say the decisions in the last six months have been a lot better, but it's just a bit uh, of a too, too little, little too, too late. late. Yeah, yeah, too little, too late sort of scenario. And I think we're you know we've we've come to accept that now. We thought when Benitez came in, it might sort of pick up but it seems like the 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 morale the uh the spirit in the squad and sort of the attitude in the squad has just it's just continued to be exactly what it was and it's yeah it's that's ultimately the reason we're going down is because the players are not don't care enough on the pitch but that's that's sort of a short-term reason for us going down I think in the long term it's it's been Ashley and it's running in the club and that's exactly why we we've ended up with these sort of players who who see Newcastle as a as a meal ticket for a couple of seasons to try and put themselves out there to play for a bigger to move to a bigger club and I think now some of them are realizing they're not getting those moves they're just not putting in the effort and I think we've become sort of a a self-fulfilling prophecy in that sort of manner which is disappointing but yeah well, obviously, some of those players and are are fairly young at Newcastle right now. You brought in some young ones in Perez last season, obviously bringing in Mitrovic this season, who is actually on form, which is nice. Um, Wendeldon was an interesting signing. You have Lasell, who you know maybe hasn't lived up to the hype as much as he could. You have Mbemba at the back. Do you think most of the youngsters will end up staying around? Yeah, it's 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 difficult. I mean, I I would really like to see Perez and Mitrovic both stay and sort of be our strike force next season because I think they're young enough for a season in the championship to be a positive in the long run. I think I think they'd gain a lot from that and not not only sort of um as as players, but they'd sort of gain the confidence as well. Come it, um, playing well, winning matches, scoring goals, they they'd gain a lot from that. I'd hope both of them would stay, but I can't. I can't see either of those two staying. I, I'd, I'd expect there to be enough interest in the, them for them to get their moves. The likes of the sales, I think he'll stay. I think he, he'll be he'll be very good for us next season. 
but yeah, it's, it's it's impossible to know what's going to happen because you know, with Hull managed to keep the majority of their squad last season. Um, QPR managed to keep a lot of good players around. They had to, they kept Austin for for six months, so you, it's impossible to to know exactly who's going to be on the move and who isn't. But it's it's impo- It's just not going to happen that we're going to sell everyone because one, that's we that's not so. Um, sub- that, that's not like good enough for us. We can't sell everybody, and we're not going to bring loads of players in. And two, we've just been relegated. How many clubs are going to be interested in these players? That's a, that's another. So yeah, so it'll, it'll be an interesting summer. I'd expect us to lose probably around ten players. I but I don't know who they are going to be at the moment. But I'd say past that, I think the likes of pe- um, players sort of like Obertan and Riviere. Um, Stephen Taylor, there's not going to be clubs in for these players, so we're going to be stuck with them whether we want them or not. So it's, mm. it'll be it'll be an interesting sort of squad build over the summer, and I, th- I think we'll be have a squad good enough to challenge for the top two. I'd hope so, anyway. Yeah, I, I think um, obviously we talk on this podcast a lot about how I never condone injuries and, and hate it when people celebrate them, but it does feel like you may be in an interesting situation with Rob Elliott that's similar to one that happened with us with Gareth Bale, where he hurt his hamstring right before the season ended and it pretty much killed all interest in him. How big would it be for Newcastle to keep him, assuming that he will be your number one for quite some time? Yeah, I think that's massive. I think um, there's a lot of talk this week about whether they were going to cancel sort of the Player of the Year award sort of uh, dinner for the players. I, I don't think they should do that. I think I think that would be taken away from the players that have done a job. Like I, I'd, I'd make that like a Rob Elliott appreciation night because he's been amazing this season I mean I I didn't think he he was that good a keeper before when he was just sort of doing the number two role but since he's come in come in and taken the starting starting uh, jersey from Tim Crow he's been incredible and I I, I really hope he stays um, I think that will be interesting in him but his injury status might might prevent clubs from taking that sort of risk and I, I really hope he does stay because I think he he's going to be one that is going to be uh, play a massive part in our future so yeah that that's definitely a positive as much as I hate seeing him injured the fact he is injured is probably a positive for Newcastle in the long term because it means he's probably going to stay at the club which is really good yeah any final thoughts <laughs> no I'm just I'm just taking it at each day as it comes at the moment really to see I mean there's still an outside chance we could survive so you you never know crazy things have happened i'm not going to i'm not going to rule and it Sutherland out and norwich are both fairly poor <laughs> exactly it could happen if if we win we'd have to win at least four matches probably five and i that's probably not going to happen but you know it's crazy things have happened Leicester have come, went from where we are at the moment to where they are now in the space of another 12 months so you never know; it could happen. But yeah, I mean, a... looking looking at the schedule, you could get a result against Swansea. Not saying it's favorable, but you could. City and Liverpool look rough. Palace and Villa, maybe it's you know we talked about it early on in the season. You're gonna somehow mess up something for us. Yeah, week thirty-eight. Could, could you imagine if 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 we we went into the last day of the season with a chance of staying up, and Tottenham have somehow managed to like close the gap on Leicester? We're like we could yeah. if we won and they lost, we'd be level on points and we'd win on goal difference. Yeah, and then exactly. you draw us. <laughs> oh, yeah. that, that sort of thing would happen, but yeah, I'm I'm not totally giving up. I'm expecting us to go down. I'm sort of I'm not going to get that disappointment when we do because I feel like I've had that. I've sort of accepted it. But you never know. I'm gonna I'm gonna hope that we can we can get some wins and finish the season well. And just yeah, you never know. Strangest things have happened. <laughs> they surely have. Like how Sunderland have stayed up like the last four years. Exactly. Um, <laughs> all right. Well, obviously a pleasure speaking with you as always. Tell the folks where they can find you. Yeah, you can get my stuff on uh, EPL Index or on Total Dutch Football, or um, you get any of my other stuff. I'll plug on my Twitter. So yeah, go there. It's at uh, Jake Jackman with two ends. And thanks for listening. Now joining me is Rob Pollard. Great having you back, man. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, so obviously Manchester City, not much has happened, you know, just making it to the club's first semifinals in the Champions League. What, what's that ride been like? Um, yeah, it's been fantastic. I think, um, I mean, since 2008, when, when the, the takeover happened, um, you know, the, the kind of long-term ambition, of course, was to be... Uh, impact in the latter stages of the Champions League. I think um, 
you know, Sheikh Mansour, the Abu Dhabi group, Khaldun, the chairman, the whole leadership team really uh, have identified um, Champions League success as being vital uh, if the club are going to be considered, um, you know, one of the elite teams in Europe, which of course at the moment they're not. Uh, I wouldn't say they were in that bracket of, you know, Real Madrid, Barcelona, Bayern Munich, etc. Um, but, you know, impacting the last stage of the Champions League, I think they see that as key. Um, City have struggled in the competition. I don't think there's any question about that. Um, you know, Roberto Mancini's tenure was uh, defined in the end by his struggle in in the Champions League, two group stage exits. Um and then even under Pellegrini, you know, the, the furthest before this season was the last 16, although you do have to temper that really with the fact that they drew Barcelona uh, both times, which is, you know, hugely unfortunate given Barcelona probably the best club side in the world. So it does feel this season has been a, a breakthrough season really to top the group um, was a significant step forward. Um, their performance and the result away in Kiev in the last 16 was was superb and they got the job done pretty much there and then um and then to beat PSG over two legs and you know you'd have to say PSG on paper are possibly fourth fifth best team in Europe um i don't think many people gave city a chance over two legs and really over the two legs city absolutely deserved it i think they were by far the better team uh, in the home game the second leg and in the first leg over in Paris, I thought they acquitted themselves very well and showed that, you know, yes, there are holes in the City team, but they also have match winners. And, you know, if they work hard and, you know, play for one another, then they are capable of getting results against very, very good teams. And uh, that's exactly what happened against PSG. I mean, the most encouraging aspect of uh, the second leg was just how hard everybody uh, on the city team worked. It was, um, you know, it really was fantastic to see, and it was clear that, um, you know, they wanted to to get that result. And uh, like I say, I thought they thoroughly deserved it, really. And um, you know, the other really encouraging thing as well was the defensive performance, because you know there was a lot of fuss made before the game about the damage Cavani, uh, Di Maria, uh, Ibrahimovic, players like that could do against the likes of Mangala and Otamendi, who, you know, have had mixed seasons. So for those two in particular to uh, to perform the way that they did was uh, a massive bonus for Pellegrini and one that perhaps uh, most of us didn't necessarily see coming. Yeah, obviously in stark contrast, this is the Premier League form, which to be fair, at the beginning of the season, we asked what the objective was and it sounded like Champions League was the goal for the club. But obviously you can't forego the Premier League where you're sitting in fourth. Looks like you're kind of comfortable for now, but United or West Ham could jump back up in there. Were you ever expecting to really battle on both fronts? I mean, this is a very talented side, but you've dealt with so many injuries. Are you considering what's happened in the Premier League a disappointment? Uh, Absolutely. I think the the Premier League's been a massive disappointment. I think... Yeah, the injuries, I'm glad you've mentioned those. Uh, it's difficult to mention them too much because it, it sounds like you're making excuses and City do have a a very strong squad and you're not going to get much sympathy from from outside if you complain too much about the injury list that they've had. Um, but at the same time, you only have to look at the, the sheer number of days that their players collectively have missed in comparison to other teams. And it's clear that they've had a very, very rough ride with injuries this season. Having said that, at the same time, you look at the quality in the Premier League, it was absolutely wide open. Um, City really should have, you know, not walked it, but certainly won it. Um, And they've come nowhere near, you know, 15 points behind Leicester or 15 or 16, I can't remember which it is, but a huge number of points behind Leicester uh, simply isn't good enough. And I mean, if you look at it from Pellegrini's perspective as well, it's kind of extra frustrating in the sense that Joe Mercer is the most successful manager in in Manchester City's history. He won, um, well, he won promotion from the second tier of English football back into the top flight in his first year in charge. Uh, And he left with four major trophies uh, in a a six-year spell. Um, Pellegrini um, 
realistically, if he'd won the Premier League, he would have had four major trophies in three years, including two Premier League titles. And there would have been an argument to suggest, some would have disagreed, because Joe Mercer also had European success, plus the promotion that I mentioned earlier. But there was certainly would have been an argument that Pellegrini would have left the club as the most successful manager in the club's history, which really, you know, it's a remarkable... Uh, thing to um, you know to to leave, and it would have uh, it would have been wonderful for him to to have gone down in the history books in those ways. And and when you look at it, um, it, it probably should have happened. Now there is, of course, the chance that he could still do that with with the Champions League. I don't think many um, you know expected expected to uh, to be in the semi finals and. Uh, you know they've shown, and there seems to be a bit of momentum since Kevin De Bruyne came back. They've shown that they can be, to, you know, very good teams. But it seems unlikely still, given the the quality of the three other teams that are in it. So if Pellegrini does leave, and he's he's got the three trophies to his name, one Premier League and two League Cups, and he's he's missed that opportunity to kind of go level with Joe Mercer in terms of major trophies, he's going to be kicking himself because the Premier League was there this year when you consider that the traditional big teams, uh, the traditional top four, however you want to uh, term them, have all kind of faltered massively. Um, it did leave it open for City and they've failed spectacularly. I mean, last weekend's win uh, over West Brom was the first time they've managed back-to-back league victories since October, uh, over five months, um, which is absolutely remarkable when you consider the quality uh, of their squad, even taking into account the injuries that they've had. So, uh, yeah, I would say it's been a huge disappointment, the Premier League form, um, for City, and um, it's something that Pellegrini has to take uh, a lot of criticism for. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned both Pellegrini and the return of De Bruyne there, because um, on the show we managed to largely avoid accusing the Pellegrini slash Pep mix up uh, on deadline day as the reason behind City's struggling league form. I, th- I think that the De Bruyne thing was a massive thing. I think people underrate how impactful he's been. For you already, despite you know scoring three goals in his four appearances since coming back, did did you ever buy into that? Maybe you should have announced that at a different time, or do you think it was better to kind of rip that bandaid off and move forward as a club, knowing that Pep Guardiola will be your manager next season? Um, well, I mean, at the time of the announcement, it felt like the sensible thing to do because, you know, I mean, I go to every uh, Manuel Pellegrini press conference, and it was becoming slightly uncomfortable with the with the questions being asked it was an open secret you know the worst kept secret in football so from a kind of logical perspective I had no problem with it at the time uh, now this idea that City's season collapsed uh, on the back of that well again I'm not 100% sure I agree with you that I think De Bruyne's injury was more important and I also think you need to look at City's form before that I mean it wasn't great anyway they'd already lost five games um, which isn't good enough and even going back into last season their form um, until their sort of last six games which they won they won six straight games to finish the season their form before that between January and kind of April sort of this time uh, was was Absolutely awful. So this was a, a deeper running problem, I think, than than the announcement. Um, so, and I also I look at it and I think, well, well, how can the announcement have been too much of a problem? Because if anything, those players have had two managers to impress ever since that that, that announcement was made. You know, they they all like and respect Pellegrini. I think, you know, whatever the fans think. Think of, of Pellegrini, and some of them have been incredibly critical over the last couple of years. Um, the players do like him; he's, a, he's an excellent man manager, which is something he's been famed for throughout his career. From what I can make out, and from the little bits I pick up when I'm at City, uh, the players really like him and really respect him. So they will want to send him off uh, on a high, which is something Bakary Sanya kind of backed up the other day when he was in the mix zone after. The win over Paris Saint-Germain, he, he, he pretty much said it would be the perfect way to send him off by winning this competition. Uh, and also they know that Guardiola being the kind of um, student of the game that he is and the sort of the intensity that he works with, he's going to be watching every single game from his uh, from his base in Munich. So they had two managers to impress. And, and, and 
Guardiola is the most coveted manager in the world. He's the man that everybody wants to work with. And if you're telling me those players have not been motivated to um, to try and show him that they can be part of the Guardiola era at City, then uh, I would I would strongly disagree. So I don't really understand why uh, the announcement would work against City. Although there are some statistics that point to the fact that yeah. You know, their form since that announcement hasn't been great. But, uh, I mean, look at Bayern's form since the announcement. It's not been too bad. So, um, I don't know. I'm not having it that that was, uh, that was a big error on the club's part. I think there's much more to it than that. Yeah, and with uh, Guardiola coming in, we are in this weird scenario where City could draw Bayern. Um, I've mentioned to a couple people that I think that UEFA may have to rig the draw so that it doesn't look rigged. <laughs> They'd have to rig it so that you play at Letty and, and uh, Real uh, would get to play uh, against Bayern just to split those two up. But with the impending arrival of Guardiola in the summer, assuming, well, regardless really of how the, the Champions League ends up, there are a lot of players with question marks over their heads at the mm-hmm. Etihad right now with the shift in styles, with the shift in managers. Who are a few that you think are staying and who are a few that you think are definitely on their way out? Well, first of all, with the Champions League, Troy, it feels absolutely nailed on that they're going to get each other <laughs> um, when the draw is made on Friday. Um, football does have a tendency to throw up these sort of extreme uh, narratives mm. and uh, it certainly wouldn't surprise many of us. And for the, for those of us in the press, it would be uh, it'd be a great story. So we're kind of... Um, you know, certainly not averse to that happening. In terms of the the changes, it is it's a, it is a really difficult one at the moment. You could make an argument for eight or nine players coming in. You know, you could make an argument for real wholesale changes to the first eleven and to the squad in general. But these things never tend to work out like that. You know, I think there's been times in in the past at City and at other clubs where you've looked at it and thought, you know eight, nine, ten players could come in here and eight, nine, ten could go and it, it never quite works out in that way. Um, the entire back four, there is an argument to say City need a first choice in all four positions when you look at it. Uh, they've got four full-backs, all of them are 30-plus. Um, Guardiola plays a high-intensity game. I think it's a young man's position and I think he's going to look at those two positions and think, yeah, I think I need fresh Blood there. Centre half's a funny one for City at the moment. They've got a company who can no longer be relied upon in in terms of his two injury prone. And I think there's an acceptance within the club now that they're going to have to. They don't want to lose him. Um, they certainly don't want to lose him. I think he's he's got a career way beyond his his playing days at City, and they're not going to be keen to sell him. But at the same time, there's a recognition that they probably need two centre halves who they know can play week in week out. Um, and if company's fit and can play, then it's a bonus. Mangala, um, still question marks over his concentration and his ability to read the game, none whatsoever over his physicality, but then that's been the same since the day he came to the club. Uh, Otamendi, again, he's another funny one. He veers from extremely good to uh, absolutely shocking. Um, he seems to be way too keen to, to, to fly into challenges. He spends too much time on his, on his backside um, and he gets beaten too easily. So, you could make an argument for four defenders coming in. Then you move into the midfield. I mean, that's where Guardiola loves to um, to spend his money and to get his players in. Uh, he wants possession. He wants players who can pass. Um, so it wouldn't surprise me if he, if there was an overhaul there. Up front, Wilfried Bonny surely will be sold. If Guardiola has been watching the games, and I'm almost certain he has been, he, he won't have been impressed with what he's seen there. If he was to go, it leaves two. He'd want another one at least. So right across the pitch, you can see changes. Um, Gundogan obviously is the one is the deal that is furthest down the line. And I would, if I was a betting man, would predict he would be the first um, player through the door. Uh, my understanding of that is that as an agreement has been reached uh, during the meeting in Amsterdam um, between uh, Guardiola, Chiki Bagiristan, and Ilhan Gundogan, who is um, Ilki's uncle and agent so that one seems to be very well progressed I think the only stumbling block at the moment is there the two clubs are sort of nine or ten million pounds apart in terms of the fee 
because um, he'll only have 12 months to run on his contract this summer. So City are looking to kind of do a cut price deal, whereas uh, Dortmund uh, are probably going to hold out for a, you know, a, a, a bigger fee that they see as, you know, what you know, closer to what his actual value is. Um, and then in terms of players who could go, I think the ones who are particularly vulnerable, in my opinion, would be Kolarov feels vulnerable. I know some people disagree, but he doesn't strike me as a Guardiola player at all. Um, you know, he's not comfortable in possession. He's not comfortable playing one and two touch football. Um, he's got qualities, don't get me wrong. He can deliver a great ball, etc. But uh, I'm not sure he's a, a, a true footballer, which is what Guardiola is going to be after. Wilfried Bonny, as I said, he's going to be high up the list of exits. Uh, Fernando will be an interesting one because although he does a very useful job for City, again, he's not necessarily the most natural footballer. Um, so they would be ones who would appear vulnerable at this stage. But uh, Pep works in, in 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 interesting ways. And I think that there are kind of three elements to how he can improve this squad. One is obviously bringing in new players. One is promoting from the academy. And there's actually a crop of very decent young players at City at the moment. that It'll be very interesting to see who he fancies. Uh, and the third is to improve the existing players. And I look at players like Sterling, Nasri, um, they could be, you know, far better perhaps than they have been in the past working under a guy like him. Um, and then I think these little interesting ones like Will Fernandinho maybe go to centre-half. You know, he's played there a couple of times this season. It felt like the precursor to something more permanent. And, you know, Pep's got a history of doing that, putting players, you know, midfielders comfortable in possession at centre-half because he likes to play out from the back. So, I mean, it, one thing is for certain, it's going to be absolutely fascinating. I don't think I've ever um, followed City in such an interesting time. And, you know, this summer with the new manager, new players, the tour of China... I feel fairly certain. I mean, I've not had this confirmed, don't get me wrong, but I've got a strong suspicion that there's going to be a new um, a new Chinese club uh, opened, bearing the city name to, to continue the development of CFG. So I think it's probably the biggest summer, in uh, certainly in City's recent history, probably stretching back 20, 25 years, maybe, maybe further, really. All right, and uh, you and our listeners know that I can't get through 20 minutes without mentioning Tottenham in some way. Um, some rumors on our end that you were sniffing around Nabil Bentaleb. Obviously, he's he was disgruntled and is now injured. Anything Would that move even make sense? It's not something I've heard, um, but it wouldn't necessarily surprise me either. I think that, um, you know, Guardiola has... Um, a kind of strong idea about how he wants to play and if he recognises certain attributes in a player and thinks that he can bring them out of that player then uh, you know they don't necessarily have to be ready-made stars do these done it in the past where he sort of sees certain elements of a player that he knows he can work with and all of a sudden bang they go into a certain system and it works it certainly would be a curveball for, for the for the layman like myself he wouldn't be a name that I would have thrown into the mix but I'm actually very much sort of I'm, I'm expecting sort of anything to happen this summer. I think it's going to be uh, it's going to be fascinating. And the club we're looking at. I mean, if the Royal one Tottenham player the club were looking at was Alderweireld mm. before we moved to Tottenham, um, I had that kind of um, confirmed. In. I spoke to um, Alderweireld's uh, agent um, sort of this time last year, and he was pretty clear about that that. Um, City were one of the clubs who were looking, and you, and you look at that, and um, you you think City missed one there because he's been far far better, and he's far more reliable than uh, Otamendi, who they spent thirty two million on, and I think that they got themselves into a bit of a mess at centre half. City, to be honest, um, yeah, this he's time spent last so season. much money on that position too. Yeah, they have. I mean, going that historically going back uh, three or four years, they've they've spent a lot of money in that position, and they still seem no nearer to solving the the issue. But last summer, in particular, they wanted Mangala to go as to Valencia. He didn't want on a two year loan. He didn't want to do that because he felt like that was the death knell of his City career, and he didn't necessarily want that to be the case. Uh, Valencia owed City money as part of the Negredo deal, which they perhaps couldn't afford to pay back. So City kind of accepted. Otamendi rather than him being 
top of the list. Mm. Uh, and with Mangala not wanting to go in the opposite direction, they then had a situation where they'd offered Dimitrelis a one-year extension uh, and then had to send Jason Denea uh, to Galatasaray at the very last minute, which, again, I don't think was their intention. I think they wanted him to be in the squad for this season as the fourth-choice centre-half. So it all got a little bit messy. And um, it's quite unusual for City that because... They get criticised for not necessarily identifying the right players, and I can understand that, but what they don't usually get criticism for is not being very well planned and executing the transfers well. Um, And that was one example where they definitely didn't do that, and it was quite a surprise. All right, well, thanks so much for uh, joining us. Would you like to tell people where they can find you? Uh, Yeah, I mean, I write about City for the Manchester Evening News, uh, for the Bleach Report, uh, and the best way to to follow what I'm doing, I suppose, would be on Twitter, um, at Rob Pollard underscore. All right, thanks so much, Rob. We'll speak soon. Cheers. Take care. And now joining me is Steve Gennaro. He's, of course, from All In Sports Talk, which I go on uh, each week on Tuesdays to talk all things Premier League. Nice to have you on this for a change. Hey, thanks, Kevin. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate uh, you having me on as a guest. Very excited to talk today, uh, especially of all days. Yeah, uh, what he's alluding to is, I don't know if you guys have heard about it, if you're listening to a football podcast, you probably didn't hear about it, but Liverpool had this small win against some German team named Borussia Dortmund in the Europa League after going down twice. Uh, Obviously, an incredible result. How did you take that match? Well, I, I took it in uh, small uh, increments, actually. <laughs> I ate that, meal, <laughs> ate that meal in many small bites. Uh, it, it started off, obviously, uh, as a Liverpool supporter, not very well. Dortmund scored twice in the opening 10 minutes. You know, Liverpool had drawn the week before uh, at Dortmund. Uh, and getting the one-away goal, you really thought that uh, Liverpool would come out nice and tight and compact and play for the nil-nil draw with their away goal. That would be enough to push them through. I really thought that they would try and model what we saw Atletico do against uh, Barcelona earlier in the week in Champions League. Uh, and instead, Liverpool came out disorganized, very loose, um, kind of frantic. And uh, to their credit, Bruce Dortmund, you know, who haven't lost in, in, regu- in regular time uh, this calendar year, came out looking like a team that was confident and strong. They pushed the pace on Liverpool. They ate up all the space in the middle of the field, scored two quick goals. We saw what they, we saw all of the big players for Dortmund score big goals tonight. They got three goals from their three top uh, you know, offensively gifted players. And Liverpool just seemed frazzled. And then as the game grew, I think there was just this sense, even though Liverpool went into the half not having a shot on target, even though they went into the half down 2-0, that if they could get the next goal, there could be magic. Uh, but where would the next goal come from? And of course, as a Liverpool supporter, having grown up, having seen Istanbul, and, you know, and, and moments like this, there, there's never the moment where you feel that the game is truly over as a Liverpool supporter. And we saw them. We saw them come back. Origi scores a goal uh, you know, to, to cut the lead. Then you know, Royce scores another goal to make it 3-1. And at that point, I think most people felt like this match was over. But you know, again, to their credit, Liverpool pushed back. Coutinho scores a goal. Then you get goals from both Sacco and Lovren. But, you know, two defenders scoring Just goals. Just like you drew it up. Exactly. <laughs> exactly how you drew it up on the board at the, at the half. You know? And um, you know, as, Dave, as Dave Hendrick, my co-host on All in Sports Talk, and of course previously on Anfield Index, um, had, had mentioned to me, you know, it's only fitting that Sacco and Lovren score the two big goals to push Liverpool through, given the fact that in the first half, they really struggled with their uh, defensive uh, play, especially early on. But, you know, it, it was a game that had so many mo- moments moving back and forth. And even at the very end there, there was the there was a moment in, on the final play of the game where Borussia Dortmund had a free kick just outside the box. And I, I kind of thought that they were going to score there. I, I thought really, it went in. Yeah. Went and, the way it ricocheted off the back. And so there, so there's this horrible feeling there that all, you know, even after all that had happened, it was still going to end, uh, you know, poorly for for Liverpool. Uh, but you know, full credit to both teams here. But what I want to say first is full credit to Liverpool. Win or lose this game, to go down the way they went down early, then to come back and to show that fight and to bring it back to a draw, even if they had lost on on away goals, which was very possible. You know, there was no shame in that. Borussia Dortmund was the best team in the Europa tournament. Uh, you know, they're a Champions League. Uh, you know, level team. Like I said, they haven't lost all season long. They're one of the top scoring teams in Europe. Very offensively gifted. The fact that they put three on you at Anfield is nothing to be ashamed of. You know, we saw what they did to Spurs in the in the previous round of this of this tournament. But then to find it in you to come back and to win that match and to, you know and now to push on with a 
what I have to say without being too much of a homer, because you know that's not the type of you know sports journalist that I am. I think Liverpool has a legitimate shot here to consider themselves favorites now pushing on to win Europa. And that means mm-hmm. Champions League football is actually a very real possibility for the Liverpool Football Club and even the most hopeful of supporters. You know, seven days ago, going into Dortmund at, at the start of this tie could not have felt like Champions League was realistically there for them to claim. Yeah, obviously, I, I didn't really think that Liverpool had much of a chance after seeing what they did to us, although we were putting out a week inside and... As I said before we started recording this, there were two different points where I tweeted out that this match was over, and neither of them were correct, obviously coming back in, in the way that you did. was incredibly impressive. Uh, much to your chagrin, we're going to move on from specifically tonight and onto larger Liverpool topics. Uh, obviously, Klopp played against his former club. Some people uh, still were a little iffy on him as, as recently as like a month and a half, two months ago. Now, does it really feel like all of the fans have finally bought in and realized that this is the man that's going to lead you for the next few years? I think what's interesting is the way that other supporters look at Liverpool Football Club and Klopp at Liverpool. You know, when I talk to Arsenal fans, they're very upset that Klopp is not at Arsenal. Yeah, I I was so glad he went to you instead of being the replacement for Wenger. Yeah, and I was going to say, when I talk to Spurs fans, they're so happy that Klopp is at Liverpool and not at Arsenal. <laughs> and, and when I talk to Chelsea fans, uh, you know, or even United fans, there's this, there's this sense around uh, the league, at least, from other supporters that Klopp is, is a, a fantastic coach. And I think we all know that. I think we knew that when he left Dortmund. I think we knew that when he came to Liverpool. But, you know, this club... We didn't know who Rodgers was. You know, I think Brendan Rodgers divided the fan base. So there were some who supported Rodgers and believed that he could do good things if given the opportunity to run things the way he wanted to. And there were others that thought he was a fraud from the very beginning. And those two storylines came in and out, weaved their way in and out of Brendan Rodgers' career as manager of Liverpool Football Club. You know, obviously there's a season where they almost win everything. Then Suarez leaves and it's, well, is it Suarez? Is it Rodgers? And it was really hard to tell, even at the start of the season, when things, you know, were going not so well for Brendan Rodgers, Klopp came in and, and didn't magically transform everything and make it all better. And so... I think that there were some people who were still hesitant to to move on and move past the Rodgers sacking. But at the same time, I have to tell you, my experiences with the fan base suggested that from the moment Jurgen Klopp came on, he was accepted by the supporters. They were very happy for him to be here. In many ways, he's the perfect Liverpool coach, not just because of his experiences at, at, at previous clubs where they also sing You'll Never Walk Alone, but because he kind of represents everything that's sort of uncomfortable and awkward and passionate and exciting and engaged and uh, involved and intelligent and understanding uh, that goes with Liverpool supporters. In many ways, he, he actually – he's meant to be a scouser, you know, and, and he belongs perfectly with the club. So I think he came sort of to be the moment he was named the manager. But I think what we've seen happen over the last few months is that people are starting to recognize that the greatness of what Klopp's going to bring to Liverpool Football Club isn't happening this season or today, but that, you know, there is a long and, you know, great future ahead of Liverpool Football Club that will tie it back to the great managers of, of Liverpool's past. Yeah, it would be great for him to end up on that. Well, there's not much room on that Mount Rushmore of, of Liverpool fame and heroics. Uh, might need to get an extra mountain in there. Also, in case some listeners are in England and don't know what Mount Rushmore is, it's a hill with some president's faces carved into it. Technically exploded into it, I believe. I think they... Anyway, we're getting off topic here. Um, So yes, Klopp, I I think, is the long-term solution for you, as you were saying. A lot of interesting things, and I said this as soon as you brought him in, and Dave, who we both work with, and I have often mentioned that Liverpool just feels like it's a year behind where we are with Poch. Not saying ability of the managers, just where you are in that kind of rebuild. And what I was saying was, uh, it was very easy to tell who were the problem under AVB and Sherwood because by the time Poch had his first full transfer window, half of them were gone. Do you think we'll see a similar thing at Liverpool where, you know, there has been a little bit of complacency maybe the past few years and you'll start to see those players being shipped out? 
you know, this is the great question, right? And if it depends on who you ask, you get all kinds of different responses. I'm not going to lie to you. I was disappointed with the the league form of Liverpool this season. I really thought that Jurgen Klopp could have done more with the squad when he came over. I really thought that the way in which the squad was set up, you know, as bad as some of these signings have been, as heavily criticized as they have been, and as poorly as they have played both under Rodgers and under Klopp, I really thought that there was still enough talent on this roster for Liverpool to be pushing for top four, especially given how poor the form has been from some of the big clubs. Arsenal has not played well. City has underachieved. United has been really a joke, and yet they're still fighting for top four. Leicester's going to win the league, and you know, sorry to Spurs fans, you know, unless everything goes right for Spurs from here on out, Leicester's going to win the league, and they're probably going to win it pretty easily in the process. Chelsea imploded under Mourinho. There's no reason why this Liverpool club should not have been contending uh, you know, for top four right into the final games of the season. So before we get too excited about everything Klopp's done great, there have been some real disappointments along the way. And I think that, you know, Klopp deserves some of that as well. You know, now what he's done very well is he's come in and he said, okay, I'm going to play everybody. I'm going to see who they are. I'm going to figure out who works with what I want to do. And I'm going to, I'm going to assess them fully. I'm not just going to come in and try and win games this year from the get-go in a short-term solution. And so to his credit, he's taken a long-term approach. Uh, as a supporter, sometimes that's been frustrating, but then you see the benefits on games like tonight. As we look at the roster, though, as we look at the squad, what we see is, yeah, I think there are a couple groups of players here. So one of the things that happened, you know, Kev, you know this because you follow the league so closely, is that under Brendan Rodgers, there were two types of signings, right? The, the club had massive spending each of the last couple seasons, the last couple transfer windows mm. as well. But there was two types of signings. There were signings that tended to be Rodgers-types players, or at least what the media and what fans have deemed to be Rodgers-type players, tend to be Premier League proven, usually a little bit overpriced. You know, Lalana, Lovren, Benteke, you can, you can count them out. And then there tended to be what we called committee signings, right? Because there wasn't necessarily, well, there hasn't been a director of football at Liverpool Football Club. There was a, a committee established, a transfer committee, uh, of which Rodgers was a part of, and of which a, a series of, you know, mostly Manchester City scouts that came over were, were another part of. And those committee signings tended to be much more along the lines of Coutinho and Sturridge. <laughs> and and, uh, and, and Markovic, etc. And so there tended to be a clash between the types of players that were coming from one and coming from the other. Then there was a series of strange signings, like, for example, Balotelli, that no one knew sort of where they came from or, or how they fit into the whole plan. I'm pretty sure that the strategy behind the Balotelli signing was he remember, he destroyed Germany a year ago and he's up for $11 million. I think that I think that's as far as it went. Yeah, so the, the the there's a mixture of players here, and I'm not sure how they all meshed under Brendan Rodgers. So in in fairness, to go back just to Brendan for a second, I'm not sure how these players were ever really supposed to match under Rodgers. Uh, and I think the same is all, equally true under Klopp, except Klopp's going to want to play a different style of football than Rodgers, and we've seen that immediately. So I think this summer will be a big transfer uh, window for Liverpool Football Club. I think you'll see lots of players move. I think you would have seen lots of players move anyways, even if Rodgers had stayed. I guess that's the caveat that I wanted to get in there. That's why I gave you that long background, because I think that even if Rodgers had stayed, we would have seen a lot of movement in this particular window. But I just think that over and above that, there'll be even more, because I think that Klopp has now seen who can stay and who can't. And and over and above that, again, I don't have access to the names of who's in and who's out, but I think that... um, to the casual fan or to the non-Liverpool supporter, they will be surprised by the type of names that I think will be moved on this summer. They're not necessarily people you would have imagined five months ago as being people that Liverpool will be willing to move on that quickly. Yeah, and uh, on the flip side of that, obviously some players are staying, one of them, of course, being recent acquisition. Well, recently joining you after you acquired him two years ago. Divock Origi, on your show, we talked about my thoughts on him at the club. I know you're a bit higher on him. What's your current valuation of kind of the upside we could see from Origi over the next few years? Okay, so Origi's one of those players that I would have thought about six months ago would have been on the way out, actually. He... he... He struggled, you know, yeah, he got loaned back to Lille after they bought him, and then he struggled there. You talked about this on, on, on the show with me on Tuesday. And then his, his transition to Liverpool just wasn't smooth. Things weren't working out. Something's clicked. Something's clicked in the last five weeks with Jurgen Klopp, with the Rigi, um, as, 
as the main man up top. So much so that I tweeted out today, has he, has he secured his place as the starting number nine for Liverpool Football Club for next year? Now, if you think about where he would have been on the list of strikers uh, on a team that bought both Benteke innings in the offseason and already has Sturridge, uh, it's kind of maddening to think that Origi's moved himself to the front of that line. But I have to say, in the last several days, he scored multiple massive goals for this club. Uh, and he's showing, he's demonstrating that on the biggest stage, he can get things done. We saw that in the World Cup. He has pace, he has touch, he finishes nicely with his feet, with his head, he moves well into space, lays the ball off nicely. And, you know, listen, he misses some sitters, no doubt, you know, but he finds himself in dangerous areas and he's a load. He's a, he's a, he's a load for other teams to handle. I'm very excited to see what comes next for next for Origi moving forward. And I think he's a player that would have been on his way out, but that has connected with Klopp and will be here going forward. On the flip side, a player like Jordan Ibe, who six months ago I thought would have been the type of player that would stay. Of course, he was, I guess, kind of supposed to be the homegrown replacement for Raheem Sterling when Sterling was sold to City. And when Klopp first came in, I got a lot of burn. He got a lot of minutes. And you know, there seemed to be this sort of connection between Klopp and I. But I think what we've noticed, at least I've watched in the games that I've watched uh, over the last three months especially, is that Ibe's inability to finish and his inability to make smart decisions with the football in the final third uh, has I think resulted in, in his, him maybe losing Klopp's trust, but it's, I think it's also demonstrated what the ceiling is for Jordan Ibe. And so he, here's a player I think is young who Liverpool could still uh, easily loan out, but probably sell on and make a little bit of money off of that I don't I don't foresee in the in the short term or long term plans for uh, Jurgen Klopp going forward. Yeah, the parallels between him and Townsend I think are pretty direct uh, and linear. I've, I mentioned it before, and people are like, "Oh, Ibe's going to be better than that." But I'm not, not just ability-wise, which I think is actually pretty similar, and I think that they play similarly in their uh, chicken-with-their-head-cut-off play style, but both of them got managers known for being able to craft people into the players that they could be, and neither of those players developed under the manager that you expected would be able to get the most out of them. And we saw it with Townsend, and it's, it's so eerie hearing it because it was all about the decision-making. If he made the right choice, he had the ability to complete whatever he was trying to do, whether it had been a pass or a cross, or even that shot that he always tries as soon as he drifts inside. But he just couldn't make the right decision. And I think there are some things as a manager, and as specifically a coach, that you can change in players, but it is very hard to change that gut like trigger reaction when you're in a certain situation. And those are two players that certainly did not adapt uh, under new management. And I think it's pretty disappointing. I, I agree with you. I think it's just like the Townsend thing. If you can get 8 to 10, sure, sell him. Let somebody else deal with it. Like we, Townsend goes to Newcastle and is playing every match and is doing very little. He just scored his first goal, but it was in a 3-1 loss. So what does that really do? Anyway, now I'm talking about Townsend, which I did not plan on doing. Uh, bringing it back full circle to the competition that you are still a part of, uh, Sevilla, Valencia, and I believe Shakhtar are the three teams remaining. Is there a particular team that you would prefer to draw or think you would match up well against? You know, uh, no, I, I think we, we take whoever we get and we're happy going forward. When I spoke to Dave Hendrick earlier tonight, he was hoping for Sevilla, so, you know. Um, Interesting, because that, oh, yeah. that, clout-wise, that's the big one. Yeah, but I, I feel that, uh, you know, I'll go with Dave on this. I'll def- I'll defer to Dave's mm. uh, you know experience and knowledge of European football in this in this particular instance. If that's who he wants, then, then that's who I want as well. Uh, yeah, truth you be don't want to face Soldado and, and Villarreal. <laughs> I, I, I feel like you know the, the way that this club is that, uh, and we've seen this now, especially in in the, in the last several days. And even going back to the domestic cup where they lost in, in, in finals to City, and then a couple of days later, it really picked City apart um, in, in, in the league. When this team is on its form, there's enough talent in this uh, in this squad for it to compete really with just about any team in Europe, with the exception of the most elite of the elite. Uh, you know, and and that's how it is. You know, when 
uh, you know, Firmino and Coutinho are on form, there is some offensive danger there for opposing teams to deal with, especially if you're going to get Origi playing like he's playing. We know Sturridge only needs one touch to score goals. He's shown that he scores. He, he's one and two in his career in Liverpool quite steadily. Uh, you know, we've seen that when he's on his game, Sacco can be spectacular, although we, we've also seen lots of moments where it's moved in a different direction. Uh, and I just feel that, that, that the way the midfield sets up for Liverpool, especially under Klopp, can make them very dangerous. You know, I'm not the biggest Milner fan, but, you know, Milner puts in stints where he is industrious. Uh, you know, I think Emery Jean has the potential to be a, a, a very, uh, very strong player going forward. Uh, Lalana ca- can be interesting <laughs> i'm picking my words Very here kind. <laughs> yeah and, and, and actually uh, and the other one also in there is joe allen has the ability to to, to change games actually i thought in today's game yeah. against against um, you know dortmund i thought joe allen was the game changer and that's not the first time this season we've seen that his his calm in the middle ability to collect the ball to distribute properly uh, really changed the, the the game because up until that point liverpool was getting run over through the middle of the field and there is there is a direct correlation between the control of the ball that liverpool had in the second half when allen came on and their ability to create and, and make space and score goals allen's an interesting player you talk about the transfer window for what's going to happen next year of course he's without contract or at least without contract extension. And there's been no discussion of what's going to happen to him next at the end of this season. And I don't see him fitting into Klopp's plans. Interestingly enough, um, and, and Liverpool fans are, are heavily divided on him. Some people think that he's the stick that stirs the drink, and many think that he's just a waste of a player. I think he's a little small to play in the midfield for the type of game that, that Klopp wants to play. And I think that he gets injured just a little bit too much, at least at Liverpool. He's had that issue. But, uh, and, of course, he came with a big price tag. He was a big Rodgers signing, one of actually Rodgers' first you know, big signing. But having said that, I think he's a very important player to Liverpool's success this year. And uh, when he goes, and I think he will go this summer, uh, I'll be sad to see him go. On the flip side, Lalana, who I just mentioned, I think will stay. Um, and I'm not as pleased about that. I think Lalana is probably a player you could take a little bit of a pay cut on, but still get decent money for from a mid-table team in England. I think he's a good player on a mid-table team, but just not a good good enough to start on a top four team in England. And I would be much happier uh, to see Lalana uh, moved out and uh, and Allen to stay. But I don't think that's the way it will happen with those particular players. And last one on that midfield that we were just talking about, uh, I, I think there's a very good chance that if Liverpool is able to collect, um, even if they have to eat a little bit of it, that, that Milner gets moved on uh, th- this summer as well. Benteke as well? I think Benteke is uh, a foregone conclusion. I, w- I would be I would be shocked if Benteke is back next year. Mm-hmm. He may get shipped somewhere in some type of international loan deal, kind of like what they did with Balotelli, where they move him somewhere else just to sort of take him out of the the, the press, so to speak, so that we don't have to keep talking about him on a weekly basis. Yeah. But I just I see no I see there's no way that Benteke can come back and play. He's so far down the the, the pecking order. Like if healthy, Sturridge is you know uh, striker number one. Although there has been talk of Sturridge moving on this particular summer, but the people that I spoke to who are close to Paris. Saint-Germain have said that there's no interest but for, for, from PSG for uh, Daniel Sturridge whatsoever, even if Cavani goes. even If, if I Ibra- was them, I'd be more interested in Benteke. Well, well even if Ibrahimovic goes, they, they have no interest in, in, in Sturridge. And I, I, with, if they're not paying for him, there's not, there are not a lot of clubs in Europe who are going to put forward the type of money it would take for Liverpool to budge on Sturridge. Mm. So I kind of assume he stays. Benteke... Uh, I don't know who's going to buy Benteke unless he just goes back to where he came from. And I mean that, like, literally. Uh, <laughs> you know, Ings Wait, is Belgium Ings- or Aston Villa? <laughs> <laughs> Villa. Uh, you know, uh, and, uh, you know, and then maybe helps them sort of resurrect themselves back to the Premier League. I, I, again, I, I, don't, I don't know where he goes. I think he's a good player. I think he could have done better at Liverpool in part because I think Liverpool used him incorrectly. And I think he just became a little bit of the whipping boy for what was going on. That's a, that's a term, by the way, that we use in America uh, or North America for, for players who fans then just start to pick on and blame all the, the issues with the team on, you know, and I think he became that sort of lightning rod or, you know, f- for this particular club, Liverpool football club, where everything that went wrong became Ben Teke's fault, regardless of whether he deserved it or not. And we saw all kinds of stats about goals scored when he's on versus not when he's on and how he makes the whole team worse. But you know what? Ben Teke does what he does. He scores goals. He, you know, and he's a decent, he's a, he's a decent to good player. Is he worth a Liverpool paid for him? Probably not. Is that his fault? Absolutely not. 
Uh, could it, they got more of him? Yes, but I think I think he's he's certainly behind Origi. He's certainly behind Sturridge, and he's probably behind Ings. And to, to have a guy on on your squad or roster that you paid thirty million pounds for, uh, and he's your fourth, uh, you know, your fourth line striker, uh, I just I can't I can't imagine that I can't imagine him, you know, lacing up for Liverpool again. Fair enough. Well, you know, you and I could talk about football forever, but we are uh, out of time. So why don't you tell the people where they can find you? Well, that went by real fast. I, I quite enjoyed that. I'll, I'll be happy to come back anytime. Um, so I'm, I'm at All in Sports Talk, which is a, a daily sports talk show covering mostly North American sports, but we do, you know, football, global football. Uh, so five days a week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Monday, I talk NBA. Tuesday, I talk EPL with you, Kev, and uh, MLS as well. Wednesday, I talk NCAA, American College Basketball and Football. Thursday, Dave Hendrick joins me. We talk all sports, everything you can ever imagine. And then Friday, I cover NHL. That's it allinsportstalk.com at allinsportstalk on twitter itunes stitcher soundcloud and coming may 1st on blog talk radio the start of the all in sports talk network myself and about a dozen other awesome sports podcast sports podcasts will be hooking up to talk all sports all the time and i'm on twitter at underscore s Gennaro. Uh, give me a follow and i uh, love chatting all sports with uh, any any sports fans that are out there all right, well, thanks so much to Steve and Jake and Rob who recorded earlier today with us. It was a pleasure as always, and we hope you keep listening. 